Hey everyone, welcome to the Sermon Podcast from Mount Hope, Belmont's location, where each week you'll hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love for God and others, so you can go and live your life driven by faith. In this series, we will be asking this question, Who is Jesus? Many of times we think that the answer can be found through documentaries, books, or even films. Yet, is that enough? Join us for the next few weeks as we look at Colossians chapter 1 and find out your answer to who Jesus is. I'm going to invite you, if you would, to open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. So if you're grabbing one of those black Bibles that's in the chair in front of you, we are on page 324, and I'd encourage you to do it. I'd encourage you to grab a Bible, or if you use your phone, or whatever you use to read the text that you would open up, because some of the verses will be on the screen in a moment, but some of them will not, and I think it'll be important for us to be able to follow along. So page 324 in those black few Bibles, uh, or maybe you have your own with you. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you know that we are in the middle of this series that we're asking this question, who is Jesus? And to do so, we've been looking at just a few verses in Colossians chapter 1. In fact, they're the verses that Ting read just a couple of minutes ago. And so those of you who are real familiar with the biblical text, you know I've just asked you to turn to a passage that happens hundreds of years before Colossians chapter 1, a long time before Jesus is on the face of this earth. And so you say, well, why would you have us turn to this passage that's nowhere near the book of Colossians, either chronologically or just the way it's placed in the Bible? And we'll get there in a minute. But we've been looking at Colossians chapter 1, and we've been asking this question, who is Jesus? And two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we said that Jesus is God. The way the text says it is he's the image of God, he's the exact imprint, one version says. I love that. He's the exact imprint of who God is. So if you want to know what God looks like, you want to know who God is, we said you could look at Jesus. That's exactly who God is. He is God. And last week, we said that Jesus is the answer to life's biggest questions, the questions like who's in control and where do we come from and where are we going and what holds it all together, that Jesus is the answer to those questions. And today, we're going to talk about something a little bit different. And I'll tell you, this message is a little bit different uh, than, than the other two messages in that I feel like this is a message that God's been preparing in me for a number of months And I'll get to that in a moment, but sometimes God, I feel like, says something to me, and he does it at a a time that he says it, and he says it's not for now. I'm telling you something, but it's not for now. And I felt like as we got ready for this sermon, that this thing that God had told me months ago was for now. And I'll get to that again in a moment. But this one's a little bit different for me as we gather together this morning, and so I hope you'll listen. Listen to what God might have to say to you today. Before we get to all of that, I got a question for you. When is the last time that you truly felt successful? When is the last time you did something, you completed something, and it could be something small, like maybe just, just collecting the trash and getting out to the curb each week. That's like success. That feels successful. When's the last time you felt successful in doing something? I don't know about you, but I like to feel successful. I like to complete a project and do it well and feel, and feel some sort of, of success and, and satisfaction about doing a job well. And I think most of us feel that way. We want to feel like, we're successful in the things that we are doing. When's the last time? When's the last time you felt successful? A few weeks ago, I went to pick up my son. He's five years old. And he was at his grandparents' house. 
And so I walked in the door to pick him up from spending some time with his grandparents, and he ran up to me, and he said, Dad, look. And he held up to me this little Lego police car. And I said, oh, Jackson, that's, that's great. And he said, no, I did it myself. And he, I could just see all over him success. He felt success from, from all over his face and in everything that he was saying, he felt successful because this was not the baby Legos, right? This wasn't the big Legos, the giant blocks, it's the little tiny Legos. And he said, Dad, I did it all by myself. No one helped me with the instructions. No one told me where to put any of the pieces. And so he had all the little pieces for the lights and everything else perfect on the car. And I could just see all over him, success is what he felt. Don't you want to feel that way? Isn't it great when you feel like you've, you've done the right thing and you've done it in the right way? So let me ask you this question. What does success look like when it comes to church? What does success look like when it comes to church? I mean, how is it that we could walk out of the room on a Sunday morning and feel that exact same way? What should, what should cause us to feel that way, that we would walk out of the room and we would say, that this morning, that was success. That's the way it's supposed to be. What is that? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're here this morning. Uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm very glad you're here this morning. You get a little inside information Uh, this morning on why we gather and why we do church. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're here, but why are you here? Many of us show up because we know that we're supposed to show up. We show up because because it's just what we've done for a long time, perhaps. But what what would have to happen in this space, or what would the reason be for showing up so that we could walk out and truly feel like we have done something that is successful? I'll tell you, success in church and success in the ministry, that's a hard thing to define. I'll be a little vulnerable with you this morning. For your pastors, whether you call this your home church or you, go, you call another church your home church, for any pastor that you're listening to or following, success in ministry, our missionaries, everybody, success in ministry is extremely difficult to define. How do you know? How do you know when you're being successful? And you know what we do? As, as leaders in church, you know what we do to feel successful? We just start counting things. We don't know what else to do. So we count people, and we count money, and we count compliments. So we don't know how else do you determine if you're being successful in ministry. Are more people showing up? Is the budget healthy? Are people saying you're doing a good job? That's all we know to do, to feel successful and try to figure out whether or not we're doing the right thing. But there's a challenge there, isn't there? Because if you've been in church for a while, you can think of an example off the top of your head of someone or some ministry that constantly had more people and constantly had more money and constantly got a lot of compliments. But the way it all turned out because of what the leader did or what else happened, none of us would ever say that it was successful. And to be quite honest, sometimes in ministry, you're going to have to do things that are consistent with what God would ask you to do. And Because you do them, even though you do them lovingly and faithfully, people might leave. And so how do you define success? It's a tough thing. And how do we as a body, how do we as a gathering, how do we know we've been successful on a Sunday morning? I'll tell you what we often do to try to figure this out. If you've ever been around church people for a little bit, you know this happens. Well, the way that we try to figure this out is we, is we come to church and then we have our conversation about church and we're usually talking about who showed up 
what they did and what they said. That's pretty much how we try to figure out whether or not we had a successful service. Who showed up? Who led the music? How did it go? And who talked in the sermon? And did the pastor do a good job with the, with the preaching? And, and did anyone talk to us during the fellowship time? And did they have the muffins and the bagels that we like each week? And this is how we start to define whether or not it's been a success. Were we able to sit far enough away from the air conditioning vents in the floor that are super cold every time they turn on, right? Well, that's what we do. Some of you are in the balcony for that very reason, aren't you? How do, we, how do we define success when it comes together as church? That's what we end up doing. We, we talk about, like, hey, oh, who was there? Well, they were here this week. Why weren't they here this week? And what did they do once they got here? Who showed up for nursery or didn't show up for nursery? And, and what did they say? What did they say? And why did they say that about me? And why didn't they talk to me? And it's because we're not really clear. I, I'm convinced we're not really clear on what success would be for a gathering. Or even if we know what success would be, we over time, we forget what success really looks like. And so we, we start to do other things to try to evaluate and determine whether or not our gathering together was truly successful on a Sunday morning. And when I read this text in 2 Kings 18, probably about 10 months ago, God really started to deal with me on how I define success in ministry, how we define success as a church. And I think it ties directly into who Jesus is. So we're going to talk about that this morning. If you're not very familiar with 2 Kings, let me just give you a, a brief, brief synopsis of this book. Because if, if, you're, if you're in 2 Kings, you're probably uh, really into studying the Bible. If you're not really into studying the Bible and intentional in studying the Bible, you probably have not spent a lot of time in 2 Kings. We're talking about a time period of 500 to 700 B.C., somewhere in there that this book is covering loosely. And when you get in here, the Israelites, that's God's people, they're still living in roughly the same part of the earth that we would recognize as Israel today, but the kingdom is split. You have a northern kingdom that's called Israel, and you have a southern kingdom that's called Judah. That's where the city of Jerusalem is even today. And in the book of 2 Kings in particular, you get this list of the different kings that ruled in the northern kingdom and the kings that ruled in the southern kingdom. And not only do you get a list of the kings, but here's what happens. Every single time a new king is brought up in this book, almost immediately you get a value judgment as to whether or not they were successful as king. If you want to know whether or not this person was successful, you don't even have to read all the stories. You just read the second verse about them, and the author is going to tell you whether or not they were successful as king over God's people. I'll tell you what I mean. Look, if you're in 2 Kings 18, just flip it back one page, or maybe you have it on the same page, to 2 Kings 17. And take a look at the first couple of verses. This is how it looks over and over again in this book. This is what happens. 17, verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. Now we get the value judgment. Was he successful? And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So Hosea, success, yes or no? No. All right, you get it. So if you flip back to 15, chapter 15, here is, here's what, what most of the kings are described like in this book. Some of the kings are truly evil. Most of the kings are 50-50. Most of them are kind of good. They do some good things. They do some bad things. And this is what it looks like in, in chapter 15. Look at verse, 
at verse uh, 1 there. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. And now we can skip to verse 3 here. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. That's good. He did what was right. But here's the qualifier. Verse 4. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. So what are the high places? The high places are ancient altars. So the people were still sacrificing to idols and other gods, is what the text is saying. So he did some good moral things, what God would want him to do, this king, but he didn't take away the idol worship that was happening among the people to other gods other than the God of the Bible. And so you have king after king after king that does some good things, but there's this qualifier, but they still let people serve other gods. Let's go back to chapter 18. Stick with me for a moment. Stick with me. I start to read chapter 18, and I have all of this in my mind. All the fact that kings are either evil or they're kind of half good. And I start to read chapter 18, and this is what I read. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the, son, the daughter of Zechariah. Now here we go. Good, good king or bad king? Good witch or bad witch? And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. And I'm, I'm waiting now for the qualifier. I'm waiting for the thing he does that makes him somewhat of a success, but not a whole success. He removed the high places. That's good. He's taking down the altars, and he broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. That's all good stuff. He's getting rid of the idol worship. But then I read the second half of this verse, and I say to myself, well, here it is. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Let's stop there for a second. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Does anyone remember this story? It's way back in Numbers chapter 21. And if you grew up in Sunday school, if you grew up in church, this is one of those stories that... um, that we teach to our children, but it's not really a great kid's story, but we still keep it, teach it to our children. Uh, that he, so Hezekiah smashes to pieces the bronze serpent that Moses has made. Here's what happened in Numbers chapter 21. So now we got to go back even further. You remember Moses brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. While they were in the wilderness, they did a lot of complaining to people. Like, think about how you would complain if you were stuck in the desert for 40 years, right? I don't like to wait in line for 40 minutes. I do a lot of complaining if I'm in a line for 40 minutes. You can imagine 40 years. There's a lot of complaining. And so the people, the people, they, they began to complain to God and to Moses. Why have you brought us out here in this desert to die? What are we doing here? And God in this story in Numbers chapter 21 has had enough. And he allows the people to encounter poisonous snakes that begin to bite the people, and people are dying within the Israelites. And Moses is the leader, and he knows that the people have disobeyed God, but he also doesn't think this is a great solution to the problem. And so he goes to God, and he says, God, would you show mercy and grace to your people? And God says, here's what I'll do, Moses. You create a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. Hold it up on a pole. And as long as the people look at the serpent and worship me, So the serpent was to be reflecting God's glory. As long as the people look to the serpent and worship me, I will spare them 
from being bitten by the snakes. And that's exactly what happened. Moses made the serpent, he put it up on the pole, and the people worshiped God, and they were saved. Now, you can imagine that this bronze serpent would have been very valuable to the people. This is hundreds of years later after that fact. If there is a Jerusalem Smithsonian Museum, the bronze serpent is in it. It's a big deal. It was made by Moses. God did an amazing thing among the people through it. This is something that would have been revered by the people. I mean, think about something that in your culture's history, because I know many of us may have grown up in the U.S., but some of you grew up in other places. Think about your country and your culture's history. Think about that leader, that big leader that did something great. And now you you have that thing in the museum. You have a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation, or you have a copy of the Constitution, or you, you have a copy of the Declaration of Independence, and now someone comes and just destroys that. A leader later on of the same group of people comes and destroys that thing. You can imagine how that would be a bad deal. And so I fully expect, as I'm reading these verses to now read in the text that even though Hezekiah was a nice guy and even though he took down some altars for idol worship, he broke the bronze serpent and thus God was dissatisfied with him. But that's not what I read at all. I read the opposite. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. In fact, what I read was that Hezekiah took this bronze serpent that would have been incredibly valuable to the people, would have been incredibly important to Israel's history, smashed it into pieces, and he's the greatest king that ever lived. How does that work? How does he destroy something that God commanded Moses to make and be named the most successful king of all the kings? The reason is right there in the text. He broke it into pieces because what were the people doing with it? The people were offering offerings to the bronze serpent. What had been designed to reflect God's glory was now receiving God's glory. And any time something that's designed to reflect God's glory begins to receive God's glory, it has to go. And to be honest with it, with you, what God said to me all of those months ago that he had to deal with me on is he said to me, if you go from reflecting God's glory, I've put you in a ministry position so that you would reflect my glory. If you dare go from reflecting my glory to being in a position of receiving glory, I'll be right to remove you. And I'll tell you, that's a tough thing for for ministry leaders. Some of you have watched it happen with pastors before. It's a tough thing not to want to slip into that place of taking what's supposed to be all about God and making it all about you. That's a tough line that ministry leaders have to walk. But it's the same thing with the church. It is so difficult, isn't it? Not to take this thing, this whole thing, 
The reason why we're here, the reason we reconstructed the building, the reason why we planted this church four years ago, the entire reason we exist is that we would gather together as people who follow Jesus Christ or as people who are here to learn more about him and to, and to figure out whether or not this whole thing is true or not, that we would gather together and this entire thing would be about God. But so often in church, we say it's about God, but it's really about us, isn't it? We say it's about God, but it's really about us. Even the way that we evaluate whether or not a church can, will, will attend a church just points to the fact that even though this is supposed to be about God, we really we find a way to make it about us. And I'm not up here trying to chastise anybody because the same thing happens in my heart as well. But we walk away from church and we ask ourselves, did I like the music? Was it the kind of songs that I like? Were the songs too new? Were the songs too old? Were the chairs comfortable? Was the food the food that I like? Did the pastor preach too short? Did the pastor preach too long? Did they use the version of the Bible that I like to read from? And there's this slippery slope where if we're not careful, we begin to take something that is supposed to be all about God and we make it all about us. And when we make it all about us, we render what God has put in place to reflect his glory really quite useless. And it becomes something I'm convinced that as far as God's concerned can go away because he designed it to reflect his glory. And when it's just about receiving glory and when it's supposed to be all about God and it somehow becomes all about us, if I'm going to look at this text and how God treated the bronze serpent that he asked Moses to make, then the same thing happens with us. If we take something that's supposed to be all about God and make it all about us, then I think as far as God's concerned, it can be done away with. And it happens so easily, doesn't it? And there's an enemy out there who would love to have us just feel good about checking the church box. Because some of us feel like God has this giant attendance book in heaven and that they open it up every Sunday morning and they start going down the list and the angels are there, you know, Sylvia, Jeanette, Loretta, Lori, that everyone is here. And they just start checking off the names. And so, and so we show up to make sure we check off our name and we do the right thing. But, but, uh, but it, it becomes just that. And there's an enemy that would love it to be about that. Because then we feel good that we've checked the church box, but really we've done something that's actually quite unsuccessful when it comes to the kingdom of God. Feels kind of successful because we went to church. But God was not honored. God was not worshipped. It was actually all about us and very little about him. And the enemy is quite happy with that. This is the way that Paul writes it in Colossians chapter 1. He says it very quickly about Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, he says this, And Jesus is the head of the body the church. And what Paul is saying to these early Christians 2,000 years ago, he is saying to you and me today 
that if Jesus is God, then when we gather together, everything that we do is about him. It must be about him. He's the one that's in charge. Not a pastor, not a ministry leader, not a district, not anything like that. That Jesus Christ is the one that's in charge. And everything that we do when we gather, from the moment we walk through the door, to the songs that we sing, to the programs we run for our children, to the way that we interact with one another on a Sunday morning, all of that is to be about him. But why? Why should we do that? The reason why we need to do that is because there is work that only Jesus can do, and that's the work that you and I really need. There's work that we can do. We, on our own, without God's help, can probably renovate a building, put chairs in it, play music, have a talk, make coffee, and run a kids program. We could probably do that on our own. People get together and do much more big, bigger and complicated things. We could probably do that all on our own in our own strength. But there is work. And this is the work we really need. Because if we do all of that and we do it just under our own strength and in our own power, the important work, the work that really needs to be done in your life and my life will not happen. There is work that you and I want to experience, work of transformation in our hearts and in our minds, work that is about meaning and satisfaction, work that is about reconciliation and restoration and purpose in life, and that work will not happen apart from Jesus Christ. And anytime we take what's supposed to be about God and make it all about us, we sacrifice that greater work. Here's the way it looked when Jesus was on earth in John chapter 3. John, uh, Jesus had a cousin named John, and maybe some of you know who this is. If you ever heard the name John the Baptist, this is Jesus' first cousin, John. He was born a few months before Jesus. And John's entire God-given purpose in life was to let everyone know that Jesus was coming. That was his whole job. But do you know what happened as John went out? And started to do his ministry, baptizing people and talking about the Messiah coming and the Savior coming, people really started to follow. And some of us who don't think that much about John the Baptist's ministry, we may not appreciate this, but John, you know, Jesus had disciples, so did John. John had disciples. It would have been a very normal thing in that day and age for a teacher or a rabbi to have their own disciples. And John the Baptist had disciples, just like Jesus did. And not only did he have disciples, he had followers. And as he was baptizing in the Jordan River over and over and over again and preaching sermons, the ministry was growing. The congregation was growing. John's ministry was in every way becoming successful. And then after a number of years of doing this, something happened that really began to threaten the success of John the Baptist's ministry. And do you know what happened? Out of nowhere... Jesus started his ministry. 
So John the Baptist, he had been doing his ministry, he had been growing his Twitter followers and his Instagram followers, and he had been growing the church, and people had been coming, and they had been watching him baptized, and maybe the tents were getting bigger that they would set up, and the arenas that they were selling out for the baptisms were getting bigger, and John's ministry is growing, and his disciples, I'm sure, are following John, and they're excited by the crowds, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, when he's 30 years old, this guy, Jesus, actually starts doing ministry himself. And look what happens because people haven't changed that much and the world hasn't changed that much. Look what happens. Verse 25 of chapter 3. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples. There we go. It's John's disciples, his people, and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, he who is with you across the Jordan, we just want to let you know what's going on here. When you're in charge of something, don't you love it when the people just let you know what's really going on? We just want to let you know, John, in case you weren't aware, that he who, is with, he who is with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, because John's already baptized Jesus. That guy you baptized, John, you need to know something. Look at him. He's baptizing. I don't know if you know this, John. That's your thing. You're the baptizer. It's your name, John the Baptist. You're the one that's supposed to do the baptizing. Now, you know Jesus, that guy that was with you? Now, look, he's baptizing too. And even worse, here's the worst part, John, just so you know, prepare yourself. All the people are going to him. They are unfollowing you, and they are following Jesus. John, what are we going to do? Because the numbers are declining, and the money's going down, And I got to tell you, all the things people used to say about you, how great you were and your sermons and your baptizing and everything else, they're saying that now about Jesus. What are we going to do? And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He must increase. He must increase. But I must decrease. And John goes on in the next couple of verses and he says to them, listen, I can baptize people and I can run a ministry and I can preach and I can go live in the desert as a hermit and I can come out and give you these great messages. That's what I can do. But there are things that Jesus can do that I cannot do because he's the son of God and I am not. I'm telling you this morning, there are certain things that you and I can do when we gather together. We can can say hi to each other and love each other and build community, but there are things that we need Jesus Christ to do. And I got to tell you, if I got to choose between what we can do and what God can do through Jesus Christ in our midst, I want the second one every single time. I don't want to build an organization where we all just come together and do what we can do under our own strength. I want to see Jesus Christ truly move among us and heal and restore and transform and do the work that only he can do. I don't want to just be a great community organization. I want to see God move among us and do his work. That's the whole reason we're here. But it is so easy for us to take everything that's supposed to be about God and to slowly, over time, make it all about us. It is a slippery slope. Listen, we're not the biggest congregation in the world, but there's about 140, 150 people that gather in here every single Sunday across our two services. And even though it's not a huge crowd 
I praise God for each and every one of you that is here and how it's grown over the years. And what I, I mean by that is I'm not bemoaning the size of the crowd. Don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm saying is, is in our 140 and 150 people that show up on a Sunday morning, there is such a great percentage of us. In fact, it's probably close to 100 that walk in the room and we know that there is something going on in our lives that we cannot solve ourselves And you know what? I can't solve it for you either. And neither can the rest of our ministry leaders. Neither can the people that know how to play instruments. We don't know how to fix the problem for you. What you and I need is we need a God who is in charge of it all, in control of it all, to do the work that only he can do. And I know that so many of us walk into the room, and whether it's a diagnosis or a broken relationship or a job situation or whatever it is, there is something that is going on in our lives that we know. We've tried everything we know to try and fix it. We've talked to all the people. We have collected all the great advice we can collect. In fact, we're sick of trying to go online and find a new phrase for the day to get us through the day because all of that is just temporary solutions to bigger problems. And we know that we have something going on inside of us or in our lives that we need God to move on because at the end of the day, he is the one that has the ability and the authority to bring about resolution and redemption in our lives. But anytime we take what's supposed to be all about God and we make it all about us, we sacrifice the ability to experience God do that around us. So what if we came together? What if we came together and took what was supposed to be all about God and kept it all about him? That when we walked in the room, our worship truly was to him. That when we opened up his word, we truly desired to hear from him. That when it was time to respond to his word, we allowed the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And no matter what it is that might stop us, the people around us, or the things that are in our mind from coming and asking and seeking out prayer for the things that are going on in our lives, we ignored those things because this is about God and not about us anyway. What might God do among us? How might he use a community of Christians who are really all about him receiving the glory and not us receiving the glory? I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we begin to close this morning. When I was uh, in youth group growing up in church, I was in high school. This was probably, I don't know, 1995, 1996. Our youth group, uh, they asked a few of us that were in the youth group, like five or six of us, to do special music during offertory. Does anyone remember in church? Maybe some of you remember. If you've been in church for a while, you remember special music in offertory? Every single week, it was special music. Not a song that everyone sang with. It was one person giving special music on Sunday mornings. And so they asked the youth group, five or six of us, if we would come up and we would do special music. I grew up in a church that when I was little was small, but it had grown quite a bit. And so when I, by the time I was in high school, there were actually multiple people that were on staff at the church that were in charge of the music. And one of the women I had known for a long time, her family and my family were friends, and she was the one that asked us to do this song. Now, the song was a very 90s song. Whatever you think 90s music sounds like, this is it. This song, you would say, that's definitely written in the 90s. And it, it ended with this one line. It ended with this line, all things are possible. And 
she asked us at the very end of the song, she said, I want all of you, the five or six of you, at the end of this song to sing All Things Are Possible and then point to heaven. Okay? So something super cheesy, like all things are possible, something like that. Now, I didn't want to do that now. I really didn't want to do it then. I mean, you can imagine, you ever tried to ask like a 14 or 15-year-old to do something they didn't want to do? How does that go? And so here she is. She's asking like five or six of us to do this. We didn't want to do it. Right, we had this little discussion where like this feels uncomfortable. This feels weird. There's no other motions in the song. We're not new kids on the block. That was an important reference at the time. Okay? And we're like, we don't want to do this. We're not going to do this. And then somehow, I don't know how this happened in the group, but somehow they had a little vote and they said, and Brian, you're going to tell her that we're not going to do this. And I'm not sure how that happened, but next thing I knew, I was elected to be the person out of the group that was going to explain to our leader that we weren't pointing. And so I remember her, she was behind like a baby grand piano on one end of this, this big stage in this big church, and I was way on the other side, and I got as far away from her as I could. Unfortunately, the mic had a cord, otherwise I would have you know, been in a different room. And I said, just so you know, we had a little, a little gathering among the singers here. And we don't want to point. I don't know how she did it. She was probably about 5'3", five, 5'4". Five, and I remember, I'll never forget, I remember she put her hands on top, of the, on top of the piano. Like you have, like where you put the music. She put her hands right there. And she began to stand up. And I don't know how it happened, but as she stood up slowly, she was probably 11, 12, 13 feet tall. Like, do you know, do you know like in a Disney movie where the villain like rises up and gets bigger and bigger and storm clouds gather behind him? That's exactly how it felt. And I'm around six feet tall and she was somehow looking down at me. And she said to me over the top of her piano, she said, when you're in charge of something, you can decide what to do. But right now, this is my thing. And she sat back down. And you know what I would love to do? I'd love to stand up here and I'd love to just chastise her for taking what was supposed to be all about God and making it all about her. But you know what? I do the exact same thing. I am prone to the exact same thing. Thing, and so are you. We may not stand up over a piano and shout it, but we do it in different ways over and over again as we gather. Take what is supposed to be all about God and make it all about us. I'd like to invite you, if you would, just to stand with me. And to bow your head and close your eyes and to think with me for a moment. I came across this quote this week. It's from a father-son team named... Warren and David Wearsby, they're writers and theologians, and this is what they wrote. I thought this was so helpful. When ministry becomes a performance, then the sanctuary becomes a theater. When ministry becomes a performance, then a sanctuary becomes a theater. The congregation becomes an audience, worship becomes entertainment, and the applause of people and their approval become the measure of success. But... When ministry is for the glory of God, his presence moves into the sanctuary. Even the unsaved visitor will fall down on their face, worship God, and confess that God is among us. That's what I want. 
is to see God do the work among us that, we'll get, that only he can do, and that will only come as we take what's supposed to be all about him and keep it all about him. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you if it's you to do something this morning. I'm going to ask you if you would just raise your hand. And the question is this. Is there something in your life right now that you know you need God to do? You've tried to do it on your own and it hasn't worked. You've taken everybody's good advice. You've tried to do all the things that they said to do. You've tried to do all the things that you read online. And despite your best efforts, things just do not move forward. And I don't know what it is. Maybe there's a behavior or a habit that you are struggling with. Maybe there's a relationship thing that's happening. Maybe there's something in your marriage that's difficult right now or with your children or with your parents. I don't know what it is, but who has something in your job or your classroom that you know? you need God to step in and do. You cannot do it on your own. If that's you, would you be willing to raise your hand? That's me. That's my hand. There's hands all up in this sanctuary this morning. What happens when we come together and we make it all about God is God begins to do the things that only he can do. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray and I'm going to close and I'm going to invite you. If there is something that is going on in your life that only God can do, then why not? In the time that we have here this morning, why would we not come and ask him to do it? Why would we not come and ask him to do it? This morning is about him. And so as I pray in just a moment, I'm going to invite you, if your hand was up, even those of you who are up in the balcony, I'm going to invite you to begin to come and to stand here up front. Not because that's magical, but I think sometimes when we move, it, 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 it expresses our intention to come before God and say, God, I need you to do the work that only you can do. And as you come and as you stand, and you can come even now if you'd like, as you stand in this place, then some of our leaders, my wife Lori and I, Justin and Lynn, we will be here to lay a hand on your shoulder and pray with you. And if you want to talk it through with us, we can talk it through. But if you just want to stand and be quiet before the Lord, we will come and we will pray with you. But if you raised your hand and there were hands all over this room, don't let what other people are thinking right now stop you from coming because this isn't about them. This is about God and this is about you and God. It's not about us. It's about God. So let's come forward this morning and let's pray. And let's ask God to do the work that only he can do. God, I thank you this morning for the work that you are doing among us. God, we pray that you will come and do the things that only you can do. That only you can do. We will trust you in them in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. And in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m each week that we gather. We do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E.org, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at 
MT Hope Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.